All right, welcome back. Um, we're moving into the top 10 for some people, top 10 finally. Um, and for others, you know, I hope that you're enjoying this. I'm certainly enjoying this. Uh, I love speaking about films and movies. It's, it's one of my favorite things. Um, so for the people who are exhausted with the long podcast, I'm speaking to you, Alex Camacho. This one's for you. Number 10 on my list of the most anticipated films of 2021 is Godzilla versus Kong. That's it. Move on. No, I'm not going to move on, uh, but this was the big reveal. Um, number 10. The, again, this list is extremely personal, extremely subjective, um, extremely opinionated, but it was difficult to make. I mean, this list took a lot of time. And to put Godzilla here, it should really make you guys uh, excited for the rest of the top 10. So let's talk about Godzilla. Uh, this film is a sequel to Godzilla, King of the Monsters, uh, Kong, Skull Island, and the 2014 Godzilla film. Uh, I don't know much about the cast. Not that the cast really matters. I know that um, apparently uh, Alexander Skarsgård is the male protagonist who is the brother of uh, the gentleman who plays Pennywise and then the son of the gentleman who portrays Dr. Eric Selvig in the MCU. Uh, so uh, Skarsgård is the star. That's, try to say that ten times fast. Millie Bobby Brown is reprising her role from Godzilla King of the Monsters. Um, and, I mean, that's pretty much all that you need to know. The film is about... Two huge-ass monsters kicking each other's ass. It does not matter who is in the film. We could go three hours without seeing a human being and be completely fine with it because we're there for the monsters. We're there for the kaijus. We're there for the ass-kicking. That's what we want. We just want a film where we can shut our minds off for a few hours and enjoy some good old-fashioned monster-to-monster beatdown. And that's where we are. Um... So, for those who aren't familiar with these films, I'll just give a, a quick rundown. Kong, uh, featured in Kong Skull Island, is not the same one from Peter Jackson's King Kong back in, like, 2003. Uh, this Kong is, again, a large... Um, I can't even call him a gorilla. He's just a primate. Um, and he looks angry. Uh, it looks like white people went to Skull Island, locked him up, put him in chains threw him on an aircraft carrier, said, you're coming with us, dead or alive. Which, you know, that that story of King Kong was social commentary about Africans uh, and the African slave trade and how black people came to the United States. Whereas Godzilla, on the other hand, in the other corner, standing 500 feet, I don't know how big Godzilla is, uh, that story is about the human impact on Earth's environment and the use of nuclear energy and nuclear weapons and how it is uh, extremely deadly to the point of uh, catastrophe. Um, and again, this is in response to the atomic bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki and the rebuilding of Japan following World War II. Uh, so, you know, the United States had the Marshall Plan and the Japanese... Uh, and the former Japanese empire said, Hey, how can we get 
these white people to see how dangerous nuclear weapons are and the damage that these weapons that they made and used on us, how can we get them to see how terrible and how terrifying these weapons are? Let's make it in a way that they'll understand a monster movie. Because if it were human beings, you know, historically, Americans don't care about other human beings. But Americans do care about monsters uh, because we are one. Anyway, enough with the social commentary. Godzilla, uh, following the events of the King of the Monsters, is the King of the Monsters. He's essentially the strongest... um, I guess he's a kaiju, super kaiju. He's the strongest titan uh, in the world. Um, He defeated King Ghidorah, and he is now the boss. Uh, But for some reason, in the film, at least in the trailer, he's upset. Uh, Likely because... Um, Confederates tried to take over the Capitol building. No, I don't know why he's upset. Uh, it probably has something to do with the fact that humanity is destroying the very environment that they need to survive, just like in the original films. Um, and so he's pissed off, and he's wreaking havoc, trying to teach humanity a lesson, and humanity is like, oh, should we heed the warning of Godzilla, our king, Should we listen to what he has to say? Should we understand his message and accept the lesson that he is trying to teach us about protecting our planet and our environment? No. Fuck that. Let's go find a 400, 500-foot version of us because primates and mammals are superior and have that 400-foot version of us kick his ass. Um... And that's what they do. They're like, hey, we don't want to listen to you. We don't care about what you have to say. We're going to find something more similar to us to beat you up. And that's what they do. They find King Kong. Um, Well, he's just called Kong, but I assume there's some sort of victory where Godzilla is the king of monsters. Kong likely defeats Godzilla, quote-unquote defeats, and becomes King Kong since Godzilla was king of the monsters. Um... But speculation, as well as some very well-timed screenshots, uh, appear to suggest that Godzilla and King Kong will team up to defeat some sort of mecha Godzilla, some sort of man-made metal Godzilla. Uh, That's pretty much all I have to say about that film. Uh, If you love big-ass monsters, uh, this is for you. The film is set to release in the United States on March 31st. Is set to release internationally on March 26th, which is the day after uh, my dad's birthday. Not that that's important to this conversation, just made me think of him. So yeah, moving on from that, that was what, number 10? We're going to move on to number 9. Number 9 on this list is important. So if you're going to listen to anything that I say, listen to number 9. I didn't mean for it to be number 9, but it's ironic. Um, So number 9 on my list is Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings. Now, I'm pretty sure that I'm pronouncing this correctly, but if I'm not, please forgive me. Uh, I don't mean to do so out of malice. Um, But, uh, you know, if you would look at his name, most people of Western descent would probably say Shang-Chi. But Shang-Chi is like when you're trying to mock someone serving you at the local Chinese restaurant. Uh, it's offensive. I'm pretty sure Shang-Chi 
and The Legend of the Ten Rings. So this film is a superhero film based in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. It is a part of Phase 4 of the MCU. Um, and what I really love about this film, uh, there's two things I really love about Okay, let's go with three things I really love about this film. One, it is set to be released on my birthday. And historically, Marvel films released on July 9th are my favorites. Uh, the Ant-Man films and the Spider-Man films are usually released on the first weekend in July. I don't know why they chose July, but the four bug films, I have to say that the four bug-themed hero films that they've released so far have been released on my birthday in July. And I love Ant-Man, I love Paul Rudd, I love Spider-Man, I love Tom Holland. And this film should be great. So it comes out July 9th, 2021. That's one thing I love about it. The next thing that I love about it is that it apparently uh, clears up or cleans up some issues with Iron Man 3. Now, I hate to say this out loud because I know that I'm going to get judgment and I know that people are going to ask. My favorite film in the Marvel Cinematic Universe is Iron Man 3. Straight up. Well, there are some issues with that film. And one of which is the Mandarin. Now, I enjoyed the story of Iron Man 3 because it came at a time when Kevin Feige in the early Marvel Cinematic Universe was really trying to get the point across that these films weren't meant to be uh, fantastic. They weren't meant to be fantasy. They weren't meant to be over-exaggerations or over-the-top like other superhero films. Uh, specifically with the DC Universe, uh, looking at the Batman films from the 80s and 90s, Kevin Feige wanted to make it clear that the Marvel films in his universe happened at the time you were watching them, so they were current in terms of time, and they could happen as if you were turning on the news or looking outside your window. They happen in a real, realistic world. And because of that, it was difficult for Iron Man 3, which came out um, when we graduated from high school around that time. Uh, it was difficult for Kevin Feige and the MCU to include magic because they didn't really know how to do it and they didn't really master it until Doctor Strange in 2016. Um, so to that point, the Mandarin was essentially a, a hoax uh, used by a terrorist organization, right? Uh, anyone who's seen the film. So in this uh, film, Kevin Feige and the MCU are trying to, I don't want to say rewrite history because I assume that it's completely different and well thought out, but they're going to use the real Mandarin as seen, as portrayed in the comic books. And now that they've introduced magic, now that they've introduced the multiverse, now that they've introduced, you know, characters sort of out of this world in the grand scheme of things, it should be easier. And again, this features, you know, the Ten Rings, which is a terrorist organization, but there should be some sort of uh, supernatural uh, stuff going on. There's going to be more than meets the eye uh, with this, but it should also be realistic because that's the whole point of the MCU. Um, 
And so to that end, they're going to address the real Mandarin. And I'm not sure how it's going to work, especially since obviously Iron Man, you know, Robert Downey Jr.'s Tony Stark is no longer in the MCU as far as we know. Um, and so to have, you know, one of Iron Man's truly uh, one of his only uh, foes, Nemesis, uh, to have a film without Iron Man in it, it may be difficult, but I'm sure uh, after seeing what Kevin Feige has done in the last decade and what he's doing right now with WandaVision, I have complete faith. Um, and then the third thing I love about this film, so we have the release date of my birthday, we have the fact that it's cleaning up some loose ends, tying up some loose ends from Iron Man 3. The third thing is that this film, which is obviously based on Asian, uh, you know, I, I'm, I don't want to be too specific and, and get this wrong, um, but I'll just I'll go with a, a broad Asian. I think it is based in China, but I'm not certain. Asian culture, the film is essentially completely made up of people of Asian descent. It is being, um, you know, it's based on uh, this story, this rich uh, story with lore uh, from Asia, from the East. It features a cast that appears to be predominantly, if not entirely, of Asian descent. And uh, they have made a focus, especially after in the production of Black Panther and the success of Black Panther with being true and loyal to the inspiration. And so with all these in mind, I think that this film is going to be excellent and I'm very excited to see what's going to happen. Honestly, I have no idea. You know, I love Marvel films. I'm sure I'll do more research as it gets closer and as they release trailers. But until then, I'm excited for this film. This is number nine, Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings. So moving on uh, to number eight, we have another Marvel property that, you know, um, how do I want to put this? Uh, there's been some some back and forth with this property, and I think that it's in good hands. Uh, I'm talking about Venom, Let There Be Carnage. So this is the sequel to uh, the Venom film uh, that starred Tom Hardy as Eddie Brock. Uh, in this film, will also, I guess the co-star, who is the antagonist, is Woody Harrelson, who will portray Carnage. Uh, again, I'm not too familiar uh, with these characters and with the story, um, but Woody Harrelson will be portraying Carnage, and the gentleman uh, who hosts that symbiote, um, Cletus Cassidy, Cletus Cassidy, what, what a name, uh, he's a psychotic serial killer, uh, who becomes the host to the alien symbiote known as Carnage. Um, I'm not really sure where the story is going to go with Tom Hardy's Eddie Brock and his love interest, who was his ex-fiance, um, and whether she's going to continue to date the doctor that she was dating, Dr. Dan. Um, <laughs> but we'll see. And then, uh, you know, I'm very excited for this film. When the initial Venom trailer was released... It was terrible. It was disgusting. And anyone who remembers it, and anyone who's big into comic book films and, you know, f fantasy, science fiction, superhero films, that first Venom trailer was rough because it was literally Tom Hardy in an MRI machine freaking out. That was it. That was the teaser for Venom. 
uh, was Tom Hardy in a hospital. And if I wanted to see Tom Hardy in a hospital, I'd go watch um, The Dark Knight Rises and watch him blow up a hospital. You know what I mean? Um, but then, as they started to release more footage, and as you got to see Venom for the first time, you were like, wow, okay, they might do something cool. Because the look of Venom is very uh, true to the character design. And then you see the film, and you hear the voice, and you see... Uh, their chemistry and how they react and interact with each other and it's just amazing it's great and you know as much as you Eddie Brock you know he has the tics and he's kind of uh, he can be annoying at times he's a pussy as Venom says which is the best part of the whole movie Um, you want to see Venom on screen for two hours you know you want to you have to deal with Eddie Brock but you want to see Venom and when Eddie Brock refuses to jump out of that like 20 story window and hits the elevator button and Venom calls him a pussy, hilarious. And that's a moment that even myself and my parents laughed at. That's a family moment. Like how Deadpool is a romantic film, Venom is a family film. It's great. Uh, so I'm excited for that. I love Woody Harrelson. I love what Woody Harrelson does off screen and all that he does for environmental protection and animal conservation. I'm excited about that. This is Venom. Let there be carnage. So let's see. That was number eight. We're going to move on to number seven. Now, number seven is yet again another Marvel asterisk property. This is another Sony property uh, that is sort of under the guise, under the control now of Marvel Studios. Um, It's, you know, being produced by Columbia has ties to Sony Pictures, but this is, um, Marvel Studio is playing a puppeteer with this film. This film, which it was difficult to put uh, at this position, uh, number seven, because of how much I am excited for it, um, this is Morbius. That's right, the film Morbius. Uh, Morbius, I'm just going to read this for people who don't know, because it's, it's a character that's not as prominent as Venom. Morbius is an upcoming American superhero film based on the Marvel Comics character of the same name, produced by Columbia Pictures in association with Marvel, distributed by Sony Pictures. It is intended to be the third film in the Sony Pictures universe of Marvel characters. Uh, try saying that ten times fast. Sony Pictures universe of Marvel characters, uh, which includes Venom... Venom, Let There Be Carnage, and then Morbius. Uh, let's see. The film stars... This is this is the big thing here. The film stars Jared Leto as Michael Morbius. And it also stars Tyrese Gibson, who people know as Mr. Roman Pierce from the Fast and Furious franchise. Um, I don't know where to begin with this film and, and how to describe... Uh, what it is and why I'm excited for it, but it is based off of the works uh, Morbius the Living Vampire by Roy Thomas and Gil Kane, and Morbius is essentially uh, a vampire. That I don't know, it, it's a vampire in the Marvel Universe. So Jared Leto plays Michael Morbius, a scientist suffering from a rare blood disease who attempts to cure himself 
uh, and in doing so, afflicts himself with a form of vampirism. And because of this form of vampirism, he gains superhuman abilities, uh, but none of the superstitious weaknesses associated with being a vampire. Uh, apparently, Jared Leto was drawn to this character's struggle with his disease and the moral implication uh, of a hero who also has a thirst for blood. Now, I love this for many reasons. Number one is Jared Leto. And before I go any further, put this in your bookmarks. Write this down. If you have not seen Dallas Buyers Club, watch it. Straight up. Dallas Buyers Club is a film that stars Matthew McConaughey and Jared Leto. Matthew McConaughey plays a, uh, a gentleman who is overcome with HIV and later AIDS. Uh, he discovers his disease too late. Uh, he has to deal with the homophobic uh, stigma and lack of treatment at the time. And so he essentially forms a club which distributes... Uh, medication that treats HIV and AIDS, but is at the time, and I don't know if it's true or not, uh, today, medication that was illegal for distribution in the United States because it wasn't, the medication uh, was not approved by the federal government. So essentially, Matthew McConaughey does not want to die of AIDS, but the federal government doesn't allow for any of the medication made around the world that could prolong his life. And so he finds a way around that. Uh, in this uh, story, based on a true story, he meets Jared Leto's character. Jared Leto plays... Um, you know, I'm not sure, actually, if Jared, if Jared Leto's character uh, is transgender or simply dresses in drag. Um... I'm going to say transgender. I think that I think that Jared Leto's character is transgender. Um, of the LGBTQ persuasion, uh, in a uh, what appears to be a uh, gay uh, homosexual relationship, uh, very far along in the AIDS disease, and for these roles, both actors. Um, got into the method, into the character, and put themselves through extreme starvation to lose weight, to the point of extreme danger to their health and well-being. So Jared Leto is doing this film with long hair and makeup, dressed uh, in traditionally feminine clothing, and probably weighs 80 pounds. And... Jared Leto's, I can like feel the, the, the tickling, the frog in my throat. Jared Leto's character acting is the best acting that I've ever seen in my life. In 25 years, Jared Leto's acting in Dallas Buyers Club is the best acting that I have ever seen. It is beautiful. It is heart-wrenching. It is powerful. It is so believable, so poignant, it must be seen. So Jared Leto's amazing character acting, coupled with the fact that he's a beautiful human being who looks like the Western interpretation of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, 
with the additional aspect that he has the voice crafted by God himself. I mean, he's he's amazing. He is amazing. And so I love Jared Leto, and people talk about his portrayal of the Joker, um, which I think was more of an issue with um, the Warner Brothers Studios. And we'll see um, the real acting chops of Jared Leto and the Joker in the Snyder Cut of the Justice League. So any critique or criticism you had of Jared Leto's Joker before, you might have to rewrite that after we see the Snyder Cut. And then, you know, in addition to Jared Leto as the protagonist, the character himself is a vampire, sort of anti-hero. That's amazing. I have this weird fascination with vampires, with the supernatural, with the idea of immortality. You guys know how I feel about time, how I feel about living forever, and the sacrifices and the struggle that would come with immortality, with eternal life. And I'm excited to see that in film. And hopefully it's something similar or reminiscent of Dracula Untold, which I think was released in 2014, which was an amazing rendition adaptation of Dracula. So those are two things there. And then moving on from that, um, there are two more things to say about this film, then we'll move on. Uh, in addition, this film features Tyrese Gibson. Tyrese, uh, who I was introduced to as Roman Pierce, Rome, in Too Fast, Too Furious, um, He's best friends uh, with Paul Walker. May he rest in peace. Um, and he is a staple. He is a, a foundational pillar of the Fast franchise. And I'm excited to see him in other films again. Because really, you know, he spent a lot of time and focus on his music career. Uh, the only other films I can really think of him being in uh, were the Transformers uh, franchise. So, you know, I'm excited to see Tyrese... Uh, get his day, uh, and hopefully he has some scenes on the screen alongside Jared Leto. Uh, in addition, Michael Keaton is set to appear as his version, his rendition of The Vulture, uh, which appeared in the MCU Spider-Man Homecoming uh, 2017. Um, we're not sure if he is... We're not sure really what they're going to do with the Vulture or how that's going to work out, but apparently Michael Keaton's Vulture uh, will be in this film. And there's also uh, posters featured in the trailer of some form of Spider-Man. We don't know if it's Tobey Maguire um, or Andrew Garfield or Tom Holland, but there is some Spider-Man in this universe. And with WandaVision and with... Doctor Strange, the Multiverse Madness, and with the next film that I'm going to mention, we'll get a better picture of how Morbius fits into the greater Marvel multiverse. Um, and, I mean, with that, I mean, that's pretty much all that I have to say uh, about this. You know, I'm really excited for seeing how they take Morbius and, and put him into the Marvel multiverse, and hopefully Jared Leto uh, gets his chance in the MCU alongside some of our favorite um, actors. So yeah, moving forward, this is number six. I know that this is a, a long episode, and I apologize. 
Uh, number six is going to be one that I have to talk about for a while. Um, moving on. So we went uh, Shang-Chi, Venom, Morbius, and this is Spider-Man 3. Um, on Wikipedia, it is under the article Untitled Spider-Man Far From Home Sequel. Uh, the untitled Spider-Man Far From Home sequel. The film is directed by John Watts. It's produced by both Kevin Feige of Disney and Amy Pascal of Sony. Um, written by Chris McKenna and Eric Summers. Based off of Spider-Man by Stan Lee and Steve Ditko. Starring Tom Holland, Zendaya, Jamie Foxx, Benedict Cumberbatch as Doctor Strange... And who knows, at this point, who else? Um, you know, we have word that there's going to be... Um, obviously, Doctor Strange is in the film. Jamie Foxx uh, as Electro uh, from Sony's Amazing Spider-Man 2 from a different universe. Marissa Tomei as Mary Parker. Uh, I said Zendaya as MJ. Uh, Samuel L. Jackson as Nick Fury is expected to make an appearance... And then Alfred Molina, who was Doc Ock in the Tobey Maguire Spider-Man series, is also set to reprise that role in this film. So, an interesting note, if you didn't notice, the villains from the original Spider-Man uh, series uh, second installations are in this film. That was a weird way to get to the point that the villains from the second Spider-Man movies of both series, both previous series, are in this film. So the villain from Spider-Man 2 and the villain from The Amazing Spider-Man 2, which leads us to believe that the villain from this Spider-Man 2, Far From Home, will also be in this film, which would be uh, Jake Gyllenhaal's Mysterio, uh, who kicked ass. Um, again... You know, some people are expecting an appearance by Robert Downey Jr., maybe from a different universe. I don't know how that's going to work. Um, people are, you know, talking about, and this is this is a rumor that is big, Tobey Maguire uh, is expected to reprise his role, but we're not sure yet, not confirmed. So Tobey Maguire, uh, not confirmed. And then Andrew Garfield is expected to reprise his role, but that's not confirmed. Um these are expected, and they're expected with weight, because these articles have been passed around social media, um, you know, for months. But we're not sure yet. But it is, and of course, Tom Holland has said some things, and then gotten in trouble, and then had to, you know, take back some of his statements. Um, but we're expecting in this film, uh, Tobey Maguire, Andrew Garfield, and Tom Holland, as well as villains from the previous uh, series. Uh, that Sony had run. It's going to be a big film. It's really going to set up um, the MCU moving forward. I don't know how much of a connection to Iron Man this one's going to have because the Spider-Man series so far has sort of been dealing with the ramifications of Tony Stark, like the negative ramifications and how uh, Peter Parker almost has to clean that up. Um, you know, rightfully so. But yeah, that's number six. I don't know anything about the story. I just know that everyone is in this film. It's an Avengers-level threat. Um, 
with an Avengers level ensemble, and I'm very excited. So that's number six, the untitled Spider-Man Far From Home sequel. I'm going to take a break. I'm going to get a drink because my throat is running dry, just like the Sandman in Spider-Man 3. And I'll be right back to finish this list. This is Late Nights with Lance. Thank you all. All right, guys, we're back, and it is now time for Lance Wine's Top 5 Most Anticipated Films of 2021. Now, this Top 5 was difficult. Um, As you've noticed from the previous 15, I love those films. I love the lore, the background, the cast, the characters, you know... There are some big films coming out this year, or at least set to come out this year. And it was hard for me to make this list. And things got even more difficult in the top five. It was pretty easy, relatively, to get 20 through 15. You know? And then 15 through 5, I could make it work. You know? I mean, I kind of knew going in that the Marvel films uh, that we ended with, um, you know, Venom 2, uh, Morbius, Spider-Man 3, I kind of knew that those were going to be close to the top, but I knew that they weren't as important to me as some of them. Excuse me. Um, And so if you know anything about the list of upcoming films, you'll know what's left. And if you know what's left, and if you watched, even if you watched the Super Bowl, you should know that I'm going to have some trouble with these films. Um, one of these films released a trailer last year when it was, I think, originally set to be released. One of these films released trailers all year last year because it was set to be released and has been pushed back a dozen times. Uh, one of these films. Uh, is featured in a quick teaser with only the title in the HBO Max advertisement. One of these films uh, had their first big uh, TV spot during the Super Bowl, and then the other one is MIA. It's, it's, it's kind of a mystery, and I think that it's supposed to be that way because of what it is. Um, so again, you know, these films... There's a, there's a lot of hype around these. I'm kind of I'm anxious to talk about them. I'm anxious for you guys to uh, to know where I put these. So I'm gonna go ahead and start. And my number five is probably what most of my close friends thought would be my number one. So this is probably going to shake up some things, especially in my friend group, uh, the uh, gentlemen and ladies and Lance group. Um, I can't believe I'm going to say this. Number five is Eternals. Uh, Eternals is an upcoming American superhero film based on the Marvel Comics race of the same name. Produced by Marvel Studios and distributed by Walt Disney Studios Motion Pictures, it is intended to be the 26th 26th film in the MCU. Uh, This film is directed by Chloe Zhao, 
and written by Kaz and Ryan Furpo. What an interesting name. Uh, it has a large ensemble, uh, which features Angelina Jolie, Richard Madden, um, who else do I know from this, this list? Uh, Selma Hayek, Don Lee, Kit Harington, and you know a number of other... Uh, act- Again, this is a large uh, ensemble. So I'll just run through some things about this film that I think are important. I'm not going to spend as much time on it as the other ones probably because I don't know as much about this one. Um, I'm really excited for this film. I'm surprised that it ended up at number five, but that just goes to show the importance of the remaining films. So The Eternals is, again, produced by Kevin Feige, um, who was in charge of Marvel Studios. It has a large ensemble with Angelina Jolie listed at the top of the marquee. Uh, Again, it is produced by Marvel Studios and distributed by Walt Disney Studios. It is set to release in November, November 5th, of 2021 um and the budget is estimated at about 200 million dollars so the premise of the film is that um after an unexpected tragedy following the events of avengers endgame the eternals an immortal alien race created by the celestials who have secretly lived on earth for over 7,000 years reunite to protect humanity from their evil counterparts, the Deviants. So uh, the Celestials, if you remember, are sort of like the gigantic uh, beings, um, almost like the gods of the Marvel Universe. Nowhere, the location, Nowhere, which was visited in Guardians of the Galaxy, is the head of a Celestial. A Celestial is seen in the Power Stone uh, flashback scene uh, with the collector, uh, the giant purple being with six eyes that destroys a, a planet uh, using the power stone. Um, apparently, they created some sort of immortal alien race that would, uh, I guess, more easily fit in to different societies because they're not gigantic, uh, which is useful. You know, it's more easy to blend in when you're not 500 feet tall. Uh, So they created the Eternals, and these Eternals have lived on Earth for over 7,000 years, which is a pretty long time. Uh, It's about how long it takes uh, to finish the Virginia Bar Exam. And apparently they have some sort of evil counterparts, the Deviants, who uh, deviate from the Eternals. that's, That's it. That's all we know. Uh, we've seen some art- artistic renditions, um, some images, you know, that are sort of concept art for the film. We've seen the title artwork. We've seen, haven't even seen the actual toys and action figures. We've seen photos of packaging, of prototypes, of toys that may be released this year. And then one, and I repeat, one poster, which was released last year for the Chinese New Year, and it features the Eternals in an artistic rendition of Eastern-style artwork um, in which these characters are sort of flying around the world, 
uh, in a very traditional Chinese uh, style. And it, essentially, the poster looks like um, Rescue from Endgame. So uh, Gwyneth Paltrow, Pepper Potts, in her Iron Man suit, a purple Iron Man flying around the planet is what the poster looks like with different Chinese characters. And that's it. It has You don't get to see the actual characters. You don't get to see their faces, their actual costumes, the design. You don't get to see the uh, Eternals. You don't get to see anything. It's just this artistic rendition representative of the Eternals released for the Chinese New Year. That's all we have is a title, concept art, uh, prototypes, and an artistic poster. But this film is set to be one of the largest projects in the entire MCU, which means that it's one of the largest projects in the history of film and mass media because the Avengers films are the largest projects ever. You know, I mean, it took over 10 years and 20 films to get to Avengers Endgame, and this film is an Avengers-level, Avengers-sized film featuring and introducing all new characters and all new lore to the MCU. You can see why I'm excited and anxious and hesitant and why I'm kind of upset that we don't know anything about it, you know, being that it's set to release in just months. You know, it's set to release in November, which the fact that they're holding out on the promotional materials leads me to believe that they're going to push it back to 2022, which, okay, fine, but at least give me a photograph. You know what I mean? Like, at least give me something. Uh, it's hard to, to deal with nothing. But this film is essentially um, what I'm going to call Immortal Avengers. You know, there have been four Avengers films, four and a half if you include Civil War, which was essentially uh, Avengers 2.5. And then you have this film, which has an Avengers-sized ensemble team of heroes fighting what is likely some huge threat just like in the first Avengers and so I think that a part of it is they're holding out because they don't know if they'll have to push the release date back because of COVID and I think the other part is similar to what they did in 2012 when the first Avengers was set to release 2011 2012 is it was so new and so large and so novel to film and to comic book film in particular, they're holding it close to the vest. You know what I mean? Like when the Avengers came out, for me at that time, being you know younger in high school, also not having the same social media presence and, and all that, the Avengers, when that came out, was like, holy shit, where is this coming from? Because the MCU was so young, you know, it was adolescent, you know, uh, if not infant, you know, the MCU was in the in the infant stages, and there were only, you know, Iron Man, Iron Man 2, uh, Captain America, Thor, and then you get the Avengers, and you're like, what the hell is this? Of course, in The Incredible Hulk, I should, I can't forget to mention The Incredible Hulk with Edward Norton, who was later recast, um... And that's okay. But it's like the Avengers comes out and you're like, they can do this? 
they can put Iron Man and Thor and Captain and Black Widow and Hawkeye and the Incredible Hulk all together and fight aliens? What? And now, 10 years later, it's like, bro, we got the ultimate battle in Avengers Endgame. What can they do next? And I feel like this is like this next generation's version of the Marvel's Avengers in, in 2012. You know, I didn't know what to expect back then. I was completely shocked. The Avengers changed my life. Seeing Marvel's Avengers, it was my last date with Emily Iden, and also my first date with Morgan Grove. Seeing Marvel's Avengers changed my life. And I think that the Eternals is going to do the same thing for the next generation of Marvel fans who are entering the MCU post-Infinity Saga. So now that the Infinity Saga is done, just like the original trilogy with Star Wars uh, was done, we're moving into a new generation, a new saga. I think that this is going to be their version of the Avengers. And I'm excited for it. So moving on to number four. Excuse me. Moving on to number four. And this is probably going to shake, um, is going to rattle some, some heads as well. Number four on my list is F9, uh, which is known more commonly as Fast and Furious 9. And I'm sure that you're thinking, Lance, the Fast and Furious movies aren't that good. And that's okay. That's okay. This is, you know, my opinion, subjective, you know, it's, it's personal. It's extremely personal. And if you notice anything from these films, especially in the top five, the reason that they're in the top five, they're extremely personal reasons. So I'm going to read uh, a part of this, uh, an excerpt of this from Wikipedia, and then I'll talk about it. So F9, alternatively known as Fast and Furious 9, is an upcoming American action film directed and co-written by Justin Lin and Daniel Casey. It is the sequel to The Fate of the Furious, released in 2017, the ninth main installment, and the tenth full-length film released overall in the Fast and Furious franchise. The first film since Fast and Furious 6 to be directed by Justin Lin and the first since Too Fast, Too Furious of 2003, not to be written by Chris Morgan. The film will star Vin Diesel as Dominic Toretto, Michelle Rodriguez as Letty, Tyrese Gibson as Roman Pierce, Ludacris um, as Tej, John Cena, who was apparently, he's a new character, who was apparently some sort of brother, uh, to Vin Diesel's Dominic Toretto, and returning Jordana Brewster. Jordana Brewster played uh, Mia Toretto, uh, later Mia O'Connor, who was Vin Diesel's uh, Dominic Toretto's sister, and later Paul Walker, Brian O'Connor's wife and mother to his kids. Uh, she hasn't been in the films. I guess she wasn't in, well, they have released two. She was not in The Fate of the Furious, and she was not in um, Hobbs and Shaw since the death of Paul Walker 
And since her character was essentially retired with Paul Walker's character, Brian O'Connor, after Furious 7. And at the end of Furious 7, the whole gang is at the beach. Uh, Paul Walker is playing with um, his child, his son, uh, and then Mia. And then the whole group is staring and sort of admiring him as an ode to Paul. Uh, Vin Diesel leaves. He said, you know, this is where he belongs. And then they have the scene where the Supra meets the Challenger and they race off into the sunset um, and then they start playing See You Again. And then we all cry. And I continue to cry. And then they show flashbacks. Um, and one of the flashbacks, I mean, a lot of the flashbacks are of Paul Walker, Brian O'Connor, and Jordana Brewster's Mia Toretto uh, from the first Fast and Furious film. And, you know, after their date uh, to Cha Cha Cha, uh, the restaurant they went to on their first date, she says, do you want to go for a drive? And they get in her car and they go for a drive. And that's sort of like, it's a very touching moment. Uh, they have obviously the tuna no crust because he kept going to the Toretto service station and ordering the tuna sandwich every single day uh, on his lunch break so that he could see Mia every day until, you know, they started dating or whatever. Um, so her character's coming back. And then Charlize Theron is coming back as the villain. Um, Helen Mirren will also be back. Um, she is uh, the Shaw matriarch, so the mother of Jason Statham's um, Shaw. And this film, it, I mean, these films mean a lot to me. You know, Paul Walker is just as much, if not more, of a personal hero of mine, you know, than Robert Downey Jr., I hold them both in the same regard um, for different reasons, obviously. I think that I, when it comes to internal growth and my internal identity, the mask that I wear on the inside, I see myself more through the lens of Robert Downey Jr. and his personal growth, his development from being in prison to becoming the man that he is today and how that is... Um, you know, uh, personified, I guess, in the story of Tony Stark, Iron Man, and the Phoenix metaphor of rising from the ashes. On the other hand, my external side, the mask that I wear to the world, you know, I take more um, inspiration from Paul Walker and his views on life and the things that he did, not just for himself, for his own well-being, mental well-being, and peace of mind, but also his views on our environment, on wildlife, on conservation, um, the protection and defense of wildlife, uh, his response to natural disasters, his establishment of the Paul Walker Foundation and the Reach Out Worldwide Foundation, um, his humanitarian efforts, and his, his overall love of the ocean. And the loss of Paul Walker... You know, it, it's a substantial loss to me. It was like losing, you know, an older brother. And, you know, I, I do miss him, even though I never met him. I felt like I knew him through his films and through the things that I got to see and read about him. Uh, so if, if you feel the same way about Paul Walker, I do suggest that you watch the documentary I Am Paul Walker. Um, it's called I Am Paul Walker. 
It was produced and distributed by Paramount Pictures. It features interviews. Uh, it's it's his biography, and it features uh, interviews from his brothers, his parents, uh, and it talks about his his life from birth until his death, and about his daughter carrying on his legacy. Um, and so yeah, I have a deep connection to these films, uh, to the relationship between him and Tyrese Gibson, him and. Vin Diesel and how they were real life, you know, best friends, how they're the godparents. These people are the godparents to his daughter. These people, Paul Walker was closer to Vin Diesel than he was to his own family. You know, that was the, the fast family of Vin Diesel, Michelle Rodriguez, Tyrese Gibson, Ludacris, and Jordana Brewster. That was like, for Paul, that was like what the Camachos and that friend group is for me. You know, they're not his family by blood, but they're his family by choice and the people that he grew with and developed with and that he dedicated his life to and the people that did the same for him. And these people, you know, now that his his daughter doesn't have him anymore, they're essentially, you know, like her parents. And, I mean, she's an adult, but, you know, these people stay true in their dedication and loyalty long after his death to the point of his, his heir and his posterity. Um, so I have a deep connection to these, these films, these people. So if, I recommend I Am Paul Walker. Uh, again, this film is uh, the ninth in the franchise, and I'm extremely excited, obviously, to see whatever they do. Uh, I love Charlize Theron. I recommend... Uh, for her, I recommend The Devil's Advocate, starring Al Pacino and Keanu Reeves. Spoiler alert, they're the devil. Um, and she portrays his wife. She hasn't aged a day. Um, and then, in this film, I think that Lucas Black is coming back. He played Sean Boswell from Tokyo Drift. I also think that Bow Wow is coming back, which is going to be crazy to see Bow Wow. And then I have word that uh, Sung Kang is returning as Han, who we all thought died. So that should be interesting. They're bringing back the beloved characters that either were written off or died or retired to sort of make up for the loss uh, of Paul Walker, Brian O'Connor. So I'm excited for that film, and I can't wait to see it. Hopefully I get to see it in theaters, um, but probably not. Again, this film releases on May 28th of this year. So we're going to move on from that. Um, we're going to move on to number three on the list, another film that is very important to me. Um, I'm just going to get right into it. This film, number three on my list of most anticipated, is No Time to Die. Uh, no Time to Die is the forthcoming spy film and the 25th, that's right, 25th installment in the James Bond film series produced by Eon Productions. It stars Daniel Craig in his fifth outing as the fictional British MI6 agent James Bond. Daniel Craig has reportedly said that it will be his final Bond role, but he said that about the last two. Uh, people love him, and I'm sure that is hard to turn down uh, You know, $50 million. Uh, the film... Uh, features a, a villain portrayed by Rami Malek, who played Freddie Mercury. Um, 
in the Queen documentary. But yeah, this film uh, follows the events of Daniel Craig's James Bond and the four previous films, Casino Royale, Quantum of Solace, uh, Skyfall. Why can't I think of the fourth one for some reason? Spectre. I don't know why I couldn't think of that. Uh, Spectre is the name of the organization, the crime organization, uh, which is like the Illuminati in this universe. Uh, I don't know why I couldn't think of that. Anyway, um, I don't know much about the story, uh, even though they've released a butt ton of trailers and a butt ton of posters. I will say this, though. This is sort of a tangent. I appreciate uh, James Bond. I appreciate Eon Productions. And I appreciate MGM because they released their posters in 4K ultra high definition to download. And I think that that is very important. Uh, So when you're on Twitter or Facebook and you follow a movie studio or whatever, uh, you know, a film's profile and you see the poster, it's released, and you want to download it so that you can either share it on your social media or save it for whatever just to admire, you go to save on it, and especially on Facebook is the worst. The resolution drops immediately. It is it is disgusting. Or when you save it from another source and then go to post it on Facebook, the resolution is doo-doo. Like Stevie Wonder has clearer vision than viewing something on Facebook. It's disgusting. And that's not the case with MGM. MGM and Eon Productions, when they release posters specifically on Twitter, make them available in 4K ultra high definition. And so you don't lose any of the detail, any of the crispness, crispness of the image. And you can either admire them or share them in the same high-definition glory that you witnessed them in for the first time. That's just sort of thanking them. Um, I love Daniel Craig as James Bond. I go back and forth on which one of the films is my favorite. For the longest time, I said that it was Skyfall, which most people agree, which is crazy, because this is a modern interpretation of James Bond. And most people, especially film fanatics, cannot get over nostalgia. They cannot get out of the past. And so even if a modern interpretation is amazing, is beautiful, is is immaculate, is almost flawless, they'll still say that it's trash compared to the old, what is old, what came before. Not with James Bond. Most people, fans, normal, lay people, fans, and critics alike, as well as James Bond fanatics agree that Skyfall is the best film in the series. It's true. You know, Daniel Craig may not be people, uh, people's favorite James Bond, you know, uh, whether it be Sean Connery, Roger Moore, or, or the like. Um, but most people think that the best film in the series is Skyfall. And for the longest time, I used to think it was Skyfall too. And I think that it was... It was nostalgia, but more recent nostalgia. It was the memories and the environment that came with the film. And, you know, it was who I was dating at the time, the fact that I saw it at the Alamo on a date, 
the different scenes and how I interacted with the scenes, the environment that I was in when I saw it, and sort of the feeling, being able to watch the film and not just enjoy the film, which is great, but to go back to uh, where I was in that moment, a younger, happier, <laughs> more exciting uh, Lance. Uh, but then I started to rewatch the films, and I cannot get over Casino Royale. I think Casino Royale is excellent. I <laughs> so for this recommendation, I recommend if you watch any of the James Bond films, I recommend for Daniel Craig Casino Royale. It's his first one. It's his first outing. It rocks. Um, yeah, I'm just very excited. I love James Bond. Uh, I love how I have very distinct. Uh, unique memories attached to each film. And that's not just um, that's not just Daniel Craig's films. I have distinct memories and connections to all of the 24 James Bond films. I can remember where I was, who I was with, how I felt, uh, my favorite scenes, my favorite dialogue, my favorite images like of each film. And I was such a different person at each time that I watched the films. And each film ha is so strong in the emotional connection that it takes me back to the moment that I watched them. So I watch different ones and I'll be transported to, you know, 2007 or 2012 or 2015. And it's like, I remember how I felt. And I, I just love those films for that. They're great films. James Bond is kick-ass. Daniel Craig is amazing. Um, and I love Daniel Craig. I love James Bond as a character. And I'm glad that he is evolving past uh, a womanizer with cool tech. Um, again, it's more realistic. It's a more realistic interpretation of James Bond. So I'm really excited for this film. It sucks that it keeps getting pushed back. But I'm here for it. So that's uh, number three on the list. I'm going to take a quick break and get a drink, and I'll be right back so we can get to the top two. Thank you all for listening. This is Late Nights with Lance. All right, and we're back. Uh, sorry about that. You know, I've been talking for a while and uh, talking uh, with excitement, exuberance. So, you know, my voice is, is lacking. Uh, so I need to get a drink. And, you know, I try not to pause or whatever. I try to do this in a way that I can cut it the right way. So, in my top five so far, we have Marvel's Eternals, Fast and Furious 9, and James Bond, No Time to Die. That leaves two. Two films at the top of my list for most anticipated films of 2021. Now, I assume that most of you aren't weird like me. And don't go to the Wikipedia pages entitled 2021 in film or 2018 in film. Or each year, it goes, you know, year in film. And that's what you type. And you get a list of every film released in that year. I assume that most normal people who don't have obsessive compulsive disorder and who aren't on the autism spectrum uh don't do that and plan out their year but i do and i always have um and there's no medication that can stop that uh so for normal people you probably don't know what's coming that's what she said but for the people like me 
you may know what's coming because you may know what's left. There's only a few films. Le- I mean, there are hundreds of films being released, but you have to narrow it down by what I'm interested in. So if you know what I'm interested in and you know what's being released, you should know what's left. And so it's a matter of where do they go? Uh, and, you know, these these films that I'm about to list, one is huge. Um, and I think one is, is really going to change the game in terms of film. I think it's going to be a, a big moment in entertainment. I think it's going to be... It's, you know, I think it's going to be reminiscent of the earlier installments and what they mean. And I think that the star is going to uh, be elevated even further in the superstardom. The other one, um, I think, is, is going to fly under the radar a little bit, just like the previous installment. And I don't know if as many people are going to see it as they should. Um, but I'm going to get into it. I'm not going to tease it any longer. That's what she said. Um, (laughs) but yeah, so I'm going to move on to number two. So this is number two, the runner up, um, the second most anticipated film of 2021 matrix four. I know it's crazy. Now the films, um, the first film was actually called the matrix, right? So the franchise is called The Matrix Franchise. This film, uh, originally uh, advertised as The Matrix 4, is now being known as, or being called Matrix. So it's not called The Matrix, not to be confused with the first film. And they did not put the 4 next to it, just like they didn't put numbers next to the other 3. It's just called Matrix. Um... This film is an upcoming American science fiction action film in the fourth installment in the Matrix franchise. Um, It's being uh, produced, written, and directed by the original uh, crew, and it will star Keanu Reeves uh, as the one. Um, The film, the cast includes Keanu Reeves and Jada Pinkett Smith. Um, I assume that other uh, actors and actresses from the original films will return, but, I mean, really, it's about Keanu Reeves. Uh, So Keanu Reeves um, is set to play Neo, obviously. Uh, Carrie Ann Moss, I think, is set to return as Trinity, which I don't know if my heart can handle that. Uh, (laughs) Yeah. I really don't know if I can handle that. Uh, additionally, Neil Patrick Harris is set to make an appearance. Uh, and the gentleman who plays uh, Black Manta in the Aquaman DC Extended Universe. Uh, I can't pronounce his name, and uh, I wouldn't do him justice. I'll attempt it. Uh, Yahya Abdul-Mateen. Yahya Abdul-Mateen is the gentleman who portrays Black Manta in Aquaman in the DC film universe. He's set to have a role in this film. Um, Again, I have no idea what the hell is going to happen. But if you ask me right now, I I have no idea what the fuck happened in the first Matrix films. (laughs) I I do want to talk about this for a second, though. Um, For a long time when I was younger... You know, friends would talk about The Matrix. People, my peers would talk about The Matrix. And I had seen a little bit of it on television. But I had never really sat down and watched it. 
Um, and it was really because I couldn't get past the parts where Neo um, was still in the Matrix uh, when he was Mr. Anderson. And that was the thing, you know, I, I would watch the film and it would be Neo, it would be, you know, um, Keanu Reeves as Thomas Anderson. Um, and then, you know, the sort of the moment where he transitions and then you see the real Mr. Anderson, the real Neo, um, outside of the Matrix. And that birthing scene, well, it wasn't just the birthing scene. It was um, the bug that they put into him when they closed his mouth and put the bug into his stomach and then it being sucked out through his navel. I mentioned in other podcasts, one of my biggest fears is my navel opening and all my guts, all my innards falling out because um, I don't really understand how the navel works. And so for them to suck this bug out of his belly button, it was terrifying. And then for him, his birth scene uh, into the real world, and then not really understanding that that was the real world when I watched it. I didn't really, I was like, why is he in this weird science fiction human farm? Uh, I didn't really get it. You know, he's like, basically, he's a battery and he's being farmed. And now he's being birthed out of that battery. I didn't get it. And it was so creepy and so freaky, so freaky deaky, um, that I didn't really care to watch the rest of the film. Now... What I would see, I would see Mr. Anderson, the birth, and then later the classic um, slow motion fighting scenes, you know, him and, uh, was it Lawrence Fishburne? Um, you know, that's that's sort of what I remembered from The Matrix. I thought it was cool. I was like, wow, this is sick. Um, but I couldn't get into the story, the lore, because... I didn't really understand what the hell was going on, and I didn't really want to. Well, I guess it was last year or the year before. I guess it was last year now. No, 2019. It's 2019, so that's two years now. Um, fall semester at the Delaware Law School. So my last year, my depression was hitting, you know. I was like, I'm going to fight these demons. And those demons had hands. Uh, so I had, I was deep in my depression and I really got into a few comfort movies, like movies that I could watch, like The Office, where I just needed, I needed to see human interaction because I wasn't experiencing it. And my comfort movie was Independence Day. It still is. Um, but then I finally sat down and watched The Matrix, like the whole thing. And my roommate wouldn't shut up about it because he's into that sort of thing. I think he thinks that we're in The Matrix. Um... And I watched it, and I was so impressed. And so for the last year and a half, I finally have been able to have conversations, have dialogue about the Matrix and about the Matrix series. And about, you know, the, um, I guess, uh, the metaphor for society, for humanity, the... Um, you know, the symbolism behind it, essentially, is what I'm getting at. The rhetoric and the symbolism. Uh, you know, the uh, basis, the foundation, the inspiration for Neo, for Trinity, for Morpheus, um, things like that. Like, I've really, especially the Oracle, the Oracle, the Keymaker, things like that, the Architect, um, you know, 
um, Ex Machina, things like that, the robots. Like, I've really gotten to understand and talk about the symbolism and the inspiration for The Matrix. And it's just amazing. It's so well-written. It's so well-made. I can't imagine... The thing is, I wish that The Matrix had been made with modern technology, like modern film technology, but I don't think that The Matrix could be made now. Like, I don't think that the inspiration and the feelings that the directors had when they wrote it would exist this late into the 21st century. I think it had to be when it happened for it to be poignant, for it to stick. It had to come out then for it to stick and matter now. Uh, because people don't care about that stuff now. People don't care about that heavy dialogue about humanity, uh, about existence. You know, People don't want to have existential crises every day and every night. I do. I have an existential crisis 24-7, 365. And apparently, people in the late 90s, that's all they thought about. Because of Y2K, probably, and because of turn of the century and... You know, how literally almost all of the important events in human history seem to happen in the last hundred years. You know, the turn of the century, people were like, oh my God. It seemed like people in the 90s just lived, thrived off of existential crises, um, as Kurt Cobain. And that's how I am. And so I like to think about this. I mean, I don't like it, I guess. But like is probably a, the wrong word. Um, I'm content with living in this feeling of the Matrix. And when they announced that they were making a fourth film and that Keanu Reeves was going to reprise his role as Neo, as Mr. Anderson, it, it felt amazing because I had finally gotten to a point where I felt like I completely... How do I want to put this? I felt like I had gotten everything that I could get out of the Matrix trilogy. I felt like I had milked the Matrix trilogy for all that it was worth for me. And I was content with that. I was happy. I had gotten everything that I needed from the Matrix. And now they're releasing a fourth film. And I'm like, yes, I need this. I feel this. And I have no idea what the film's going to be about. I have no idea how he's going to come back. Again, he's like half program anyway. So I don't know how it's going to work. Uh, you know, it's a recycling of the Matrix. If you've seen the films, you've under, you understand. Um, I don't know how they're going to deal with and depict the recycling of the Matrix. But we'll see. Also, with the freed humans versus the people that still live in the Matrix. I don't know how that's going to work. Um, but yeah, I'm really excited. I love Keanu Reeves, Johnny Utah. Um, yeah, that's pretty much it. Uh, that's... Number two, so we're going to move on to number one. Uh, I'm going to clean out some of these tabs so we can get a clear screen for number one. So, I've had a pretty good list. Um, the Matrix 4, Matrix, I should just call it, is high on my list. I'm really excited for it. But number one, my most anticipated film of 2021 is Death on the Nile. That's right. Death on the Nile. Death on the Nile is an upcoming mystery thriller film directed by Kenneth Branagh with a screenplay by Michael Green based on the 1937 novel of the same name by Agatha Christie. Produced by Branagh, Ridley Scott, Simon Kinberg, 
Judy Hoffland, Mark Gordon, and Kevin J. Walsh. The film is a follow-up to 2017's Murder on the Orient Express. And stars Brunel returning as Hercule Perot, who is the um, detective. I'll get into that later. Along with Tom Bateman, also returning from the first film, Arnett Benning, Annette Benning, sorry, Russell Brand. Excited to see him again. Um, Ali Fazai, Dawn French, Gal Gadot, uh, the suspicious cannibal, Army Hammer. I don't know how that will work. Rose Leslie, Emma Mackey, uh, Sophie Alcanado, Jennifer Saunders, and let's see the right. Uh, the film is the third screen adaptation uh, adaptation of Christie's novel following the 1978 film and an episode of the television series Agatha Christie's Perot broadcast in 2004. Uh, let's see. Uh, f- principal photography began in September of 2019. Um, filming is taking place or took place in England. Uh, and on location in Morocco, and wrapped in December of 2019, um, which is kind of crazy. Uh, the film is set to be released September 17th of 2021 by 20th Century Studios, no longer 20th Century Fox. Um, again, I probably murdered, uh, pun, some of those names. Uh, <laughs> I, pr- <laughs> I probably murdered some of those names, uh, and I apologize for that. Um, you know, I, I'm so excited for this film. Uh, I keep looking at Army Hammer's name. I'm just going to mention that real quick. Army Hammer, I think, may have eaten those people. Um, I think that Army Hammer may be a serial killer, and I hope that he doesn't hear this and come eat me. Um, just wanted to put that out there. I'm pretty sure that he killed those people and ate those people. Anyway, not the point. Uh, moving on. So the I, I don't really know anything about Death on the Nile. I know some of these people. Obviously, I know Gal Gadot um, and Russell Brand, so I'm excited for that. Uh, and Detective Hercule Perot. I hope that I'm uh, pronouncing that correctly. I don't speak French. Um... Anyway, so the first film, um, Murder on the Orient Express, I'll go through the cast real quick of that film. Uh, it starred Penelope Cruz, uh, w- William Defoe, Johnny Depp, Josh Gad, um, Derek Jacoby, Leslie Odom Jr., Michelle Pfeiffer, and Daisy Ridley. And Daisy Ridley and Josh Gad really had more standout roles than what they're known for. Josh Gad course is known as Olaf uh, in the Frozen films uh, which I haven't seen so uh, sorry but yeah Josh Gad plays Olaf and Daisy Ridley of course plays Rey in Star Wars but this role I felt like was more of a standout role for them um, you know coming forward out of their Disney out of their uh, more childish roles into a more adult um, acting role of course with William Defoe and Michelle Pfeiffer, uh, Johnny Depp, 
and Penelope Cruz. It's a strong cast, you know, and Judy Dench. I can't fail to mention Judy Dench. Um, in that film, uh, just to give a brief synopsis, uh, is essentially uh, a murder occurs on a train uh, on this journey. The train eventually it gets stuck, inevitably gets stuck because of a snowstorm. And this detective who happens to be on the train um, sort of takes it upon himself uh, to solve the mystery, uh, to discover who the murderer is before the train arrives at its destination so that the person can be taken into custody upon arrival. Um, Johnny Depp is the character that's murdered. Uh, He's aware that people are after him and asks the detective for personal protection uh, not a prophylactic, but like a bodyguard. Uh, early in the film, the detective realizes he can sense because he has uh, a keen, uh, acute ability uh, to read people that Johnny Depp is a bad person. Um, and so he declines. And then that night, Johnny Depp is murdered. Um, so, ugh, personal guilt there. Uh, and essentially, it's, the whole film is about this murder mystery. Uh, it's very well done. I think that it is... I prefer it to Knives Out, personally. Uh, with Knives Out, I kind of... Let's just say, at the end of Knives Out, I knew who the killer was. You know what I mean? I knew what happened. Um, also, uh, Apple never allows for villains uh, to use their products in films. So you can never be the bad guy or the antagonist and use an Apple product in a film. So you just look for who doesn't have an iPhone because iPhones are featured prominently uh, in Knives Out and Chris Evans doesn't have an iPhone. Boom. Anyway, I knew who I knew who the killer was. It was a great film. Don't get me wrong. I love it. And, you know, uh, high up on my list. But I think that the reason I love Murder on the Orient Express so much, of course, I haven't read the books. I didn't see... Uh, the previous older adaptations, the reason I love Murder on the Orient Express so much is because I had no idea who the fuck the murderer was. I had no... It was an actual mystery for me. And I was solving the mystery with the detective. I was, like, trying to figure it out, and I just couldn't do it. I was like, who the hell killed Johnny Depp? It was Amber Heard the whole time. No, I'm sorry. I should probably cut that out. Uh, beep. Now, anyway, <laughs> uh, it wasn't Amber Heard. Uh, anyway, I had no idea who the murderer was. The suspense was killing me. It was one of the only mystery films where I didn't know the mystery. I couldn't solve the mystery myself. Um, and I love that. I love that they outsmarted me. Because, not to toot my own horn, um, but, you know, I do, I am somewhat intelligent and I do uh, focus and put a lot of my life into this genre and this sort of thing, this sort of murder mystery. I had no idea who the hell it was. Um, I don't want to spoil it for you. I'm not going to. Um, but yes, back to the death on death on the Nile. Um, I'm super excited for this film. If it's anything like the first film, if it's anything like that material, murder mystery thriller, ensemble cast cool detective i'm super hyped for it um it's probably not gonna i don't know if it'll be my favorite film of the year i can't say that because i don't know the future i'm not a fortune teller um 
Murder on the Orient Express is extremely high on my all-time list. Um, but, I mean, who knows? You know, any of these Marvel films or The Matrix could be higher than Death on the Nile at the end of the year. Maybe I should do an end-of-the-year recap, uh, seeing where these films ended up on my list after I actually viewed them. But in terms of anticipation, because of how well-made the 2017 Murder on the Orient Express was, how well-made, how well-written the acting, just everything about it, the feeling that it gave me. And because I'm excited for another murder mystery thriller ensemble, uh, a whodunit, a real modern day whodunit, Death on the Nile is my most anticipated film of 2021. So that about wraps this up. Uh, It's been a long podcast. I'm sorry uh, for anyone who felt like this dragged on a little too long. I apologize. Uh, I'm long-winded, especially with films. And I was going to do a top 10, but I felt like a top 10 didn't do these films justice. Um, I'm super excited uh, for this year in film. I'm super excited for this year just to be different than last year. Um, But again, I hope that uh, people look at this list, listen to this list, uh, take them into consideration watch some movies, sit down and watch some movies with their friends and family, uh, especially, you know, if you're at home um, because of quarantine and being socially distanced and all that good stuff. Um, Take the time to catch up on the other installments in these series. You know, I I mentioned 20 films, and those 20 films probably have 50 films that uh, come before them. Um, (laughs) So, you know... Take the time to to watch those films together with your friends and family, whether it be you know streaming or hard copies, and then be ready to see them either in theaters or streaming. Um, again, I just wanted to thank everyone for tuning in. Uh, I'd like to thank everyone who listens for listening, for caring, for making me feel heard. Um, I appreciate you all very much, and I'm excited for another episode. I don't know what I'm going to do next time, but we'll see. Uh, but you know, the bar's coming up and that should be, uh, that should take some of my time, uh, honestly, but yeah, I'm going to wrap this up. Uh, this has been another episode of late nights with Lance Winchester's favorite late night talk show. I'm your host, Lance Gunner Wines signing off. Good night, Winchester. Mm -hmm.